Thanks for listening to the One Voice Podcast. It's a safe place for conversation on relevant topics with real life stories to encourage and inspire you along life's journey of healing from sexual abuse. I'm Mary O'Brien with Nicole Braddock Bromley. We're so excited about today's podcast. We actually have a couple with us, Vince and Vicki Dodato. Vicki and I have been friends for years and years, and in fact, connected with her before my first book, Hush, came out. And she is the director of the Child Sexual Abuse Institute of Ohio. She's been speaking about sexual abuse and working with trauma victims for years, and just someone that I really, really respect in the field. And Anytime I want wisdom on something that I feel like no one else can give me, Vicki's someone that I kind of go to. <laughs> and um, it's just really neat to to be with her today and, and also with her husband, Vince, who's also a therapist working with trauma victims and, and also a minister. So thank you guys so much for taking the time to both join us today. Well, we're glad to be here. <laughs> yes, it's a good thing. Good. Well, as I was thinking about the timing of the podcast, you know, going into some people celebrate Valentine's Day, some people get real into it, other people like me really think it's kind of silly. But, <laughs> you know, people in general, I think this time of year are thinking a lot about relationships and for survivors of sexual trauma, the impact that abuse has had on them is something that they think about too. And so I thought it would be really cool to hear from you guys, especially you, Vince, if, if you wouldn't mind chatting with us a little bit about, you know, what does it look like for a partner uh, of an abuse survivor to support them along the healing journey? You know, whether that survivor's gone through therapy, whether they haven't, whether in they're in it now, whether they never want to be, you know, we need people in our lives that, can walk with us through that and be a safe place, um, you know, healthy and supportive and helpful, but also to shut their mouths when they don't need to talk about it with <laughs> us. So, you know, and let us live. <laughs> so, um, yeah, Vince, just from your experience, I know you've had years and years of, of experience with people going through this. What are some of the things that that you would say to a loved one, to a partner, um, and then also maybe even to the survivor themselves as you know, how can they communicate better? That is a lot to respond to. So I'm going to try to just give a structural overview of yeah. that. And one of the things that uh, I focus on when you are in a conflict and every relationship, because relationships are so challenging, your conflict is going to bring up your personality weakness. So everybody's personality is different. So what we try not to do is classify all survivors as being predictable in specific ways because every survivor is unique. Their personality is unique. How they respond to stress or conflict is unique. Mm -hmm. What their history looks like is unique. So I try to teach principles without trying to classify every survivor as some specific person who does these specific things and try to help the person who's in the relationship do some self-assessment themselves and say, hey, what's your relationship? What's your personality? What are your communication strengths and weaknesses? What are your conflict strengths and weaknesses? And learn about yourself so that you don't think all the problems that you have in your relationship is because of the survivor's abuse. Oh, that's really good. Yeah. That's so silly 
to think that the survivor's abuse is what is causing all of these issues in a relationship. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And to take the weight so, off of someone who even that experience of abuse wasn't their fault. So feeling like you're trying to get over uh, the lie that the abuse is your fault and then walking into a marriage or some sort of a relationship where now you feel like, well, now that's my fault. I'm bringing it in. So it's nice to hear you say, you know, to look at the whole picture and, and to not put that all on the survivor. I think what this has said is, is really, really foundational because um, most of the people I work with, you know, statistically are females, but I have worked with male survivors. Mm-hmm. But because they're mostly female survivors, when I do marital um, or couples counseling or adjunct, you know, as part of the survivor's therapy, I always, always encourage the spouse to come in and I see that pattern very significantly. Now, if they're not supportive at all, they generally don't walk through the door. Mm-hmm. But, but I will say that's rare. You know, most of the people I've worked with in over 40 years, uh, their family members do come in. I would say that's the majority, which is really encouraging. Mm-hmm. Now, I want to add something that for anyone listening to this thinking, well, my spouse would, would not do that. Here, here's just a, a rule of thumb, but it's a, it's a proven one. Your recovery does not depend on anybody else because that would just be one more injustice mm-hmm. and a long line of injustices. So if your spouse doesn't come, yes, that's disappointing. And I don't want to sound like I'm trivializing that. But you can get better, period. And that's really my whole message. Mm-hmm. You can get better. Um, now, if a spouse will come, that's one of the first things that we work on is generally they say, well, I'm here to support my wife. Even if it's said nicely, kindly, and I can, you know, and they're supportive, you know, I realize early on they still don't think <laughs> that they have a piece in, in this puzzle. So mm-hmm. that's, that's foundational to just saying that everybody comes into a relationship, everybody with their own set of baggage. Yeah. And we use those little pictures of standing at a train station. I'm sure you use the same thing. Um, but everybody's picking up luggage. And some people have, um, you know, five, five bags and others have one or a duffel bag. But the point is nobody, nobody gets on a train or a journey without something. So mm-hmm. that's how I have them look at it. So the first thing is I have the spouses identify what baggage they're bringing on the trip. Mm-hmm. And that always throws them. Uh, and so I hope that's helpful. But that's at least where we start. And then I'd like to approach that couple's counseling initially without even addressing the trauma or that they happen to be married to a survivor. Like they're basic couple's issues that we'd address with any couple. Once we get those foundations um, discussed and brought out into the open, then we add the piece of, okay, now you happen to be married to somebody that's a survivor of deep trauma or sexual abuse, whatever it is Mm -hmm. that you're dealing with. But then we say, how does that affect these basic foundations? Instead of, uh, like you said, Nicole, it's just refreshing for the survivor to not feel like, here I am, you know, the damaged goods, Mm -hmm. you know, that can follow them throughout life. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think over the course of even my work, I've seen how, Oftentimes, survivors choose a specific type of partner to be in relationship Mm -hmm. with, and the reasoning is often an unhealthy one, and the person they're choosing has unhealth that they're attracted to, which then, through the course of a marriage or some sort of a relationship, that 
rears its ugly head in in deeper, darker ways than you even thought when you sort of chose to get together. So it's important to look at that. And like you said, to even look at the partner of the abused survivor to see what are those characteristics and how do we now work through those? That's really, really good. One of the things I I like to do and I think that is so helpful is to always present it in a non-threatening, non-blaming perspective and basically say there are levels of health and levels of dysfunction to be sure, but nobody escapes this life without some measure of damage. So I don't focus on the percentages. I just say, listen, this is the reality. Um, But the good news is, and I've seen it over and over, and I don't just say this to um, make people feel better. I couldn't stay in this job or do the work I do if this wasn't true. I would have burned out decades ago. Mm -hmm. But I've seen over and over the survivor come in, address their issues. It brings the spouse in. And over a period of time, the spouse starts to realize their baggage and they can, well, there's a choice then to be made. Mm-hmm. And Vince address, um, he does a good job. I'll let him speak a minute about addressing um, that issue that sometimes relationships don't work as one partner gets healthier, the mm-hmm. other one doesn't come on board. Mm-hmm. But I have seen so many couples, um, so many, not just improve or recover individually, but then as a couple, and their marriages are, are beyond what they could have imagined when they first walked in the door. One of the things that, that I would say, Nicole, is if I look at the big picture, so if I go back again as a marriage and family therapist and say there are two very helpful free online personality things that a person could look at just to get an overview as to what they're like, mm-hmm. what their strengths and weaknesses are. So one has been around like 80 to 90 years, and it's got lots of psychometric support that says it's accurate about what it's measuring. And it's called the DISC, the capital letters D, I, S, and C. So if a person looks that up, they will learn a lot about what their personality strengths and weaknesses are. One example would be, let's say your strengths is you're an initiating sort of person And you tend to focus on tasks. You end up marrying someone who is more people-oriented, who tends to be more of a responder than an initiator. So you have two very different people. One person, their focus on motivation is on task-oriented and getting things done, and they tend to initiate. And they're married to someone who tends to be more a responder and focus on feelings. These two people are going to be missing each other on a regular basis about what seems to be the most important thing or what they need to communicate or how they need to communicate. Mm -hmm. So then if a person is a survivor, they may have issues. They probably will have issues with trust and being vulnerable. Of course, yeah. So depending on if they're more the initiator task-oriented versus the more responsive emotion, people-oriented, there's going to be a regular miss over and over and over and over where they're going to miss in their communication. And if they don't learn how to appreciate the differences rather than try to get the other person to become like them, Mm -hmm. there's going to be all kinds of walls built up over time. Sure. Because... People are trying to make the other person like them. Yeah. 
both people are going to feel like the other person doesn't understand them or want to listen to them. Mm -hmm. Or judged. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. So you have two good people. So it's not like either person is bad or wrong or selfish necessarily any more than any of us are selfish. Mm -hmm. But if they don't have the strategies to work on that dynamic, their relationship can't thrive. So the recovery, the abuse issues is a separate issue, like what Vicki was saying, from the basic structural issues of what you have in a relationship. And an allowing of the other party to be free to be themselves. Absolutely. Celebrating them and their uniqueness. That comes before even the trauma therapy. Okay. That's right. So if a person wanted to get some personal insight, they could look at the DISC. And then some clients of mine also enjoy something called the Enneagram. Love it. I like the DISC better, but the Enneagram can be very helpful also in people just getting an idea of how people are very different and appreciation of the differences. It's another way of saying here are basic strengths and weaknesses of different people. Right. I'm also wondering, just from your experience, are there are there any maybe like one or two or three common miscommunications that ha- happen specifically between survivor and support person that you've worked through to help them, you know, be better at communicating or help the survivor feel more supported? Are there anything, anything in that area? The left brain, right brain functioning That's in both men and women. I've been in this work for over 40 years, and nothing changed my perspective more or helped me more. I want to back up and come back to this in a minute, but number one, a deepening of my own faith. But so getting the spiritual part of healing is huge, Mm -hmm. is huge. Mm -hmm. But the other part was getting an understanding of how the left brain, right brain, left hemisphere, right hemisphere attached and how they connect trauma or disconnect trauma and how the brain literally codes trauma in the body, Mm. even into the cells. But all of that affects our thinking. So in general, and I'm being generic and stereotypical, but if I can lay a foundation real quick, the left brain, left hemisphere in both men, you know, is where logic, spatial, all of that is located. The right brain is where emotions are located. So traditional therapy is focused and taught. Like when I went to graduate school, they didn't call it left brain therapy, but basically that's what it was. It's all about logic, behavior. You know, it focuses on the thinking aspect. And when I began this field, started working with trauma, you realize this. You cannot, and Vince says this all the time, to spouses and and eventually they get it you cannot logic someone out of an emotion Mm. so that's where a lot of conflict and fights start it's Mm -hmm. not the issue it becomes left brain versus right brain Mm -hmm. so in general men's brain patterning is to go to logic and in their mind what their wife is feeling or how she's reacting is we use that quote emotional But what they need to understand is that is exactly where trauma is coded in the the right brain. So what started to change my perspective out of my traditional training in cognitive therapy was looking at the right brain, understanding body memory, Mm -hmm. understanding pre-verbal body memory and pre-verbal trauma is very different than trauma that occurs after the child has the ability to form speech and talk. Mm. 
So there were so many things that just started to make sense after years and years of working in the field. So I changed really the way I work with clients, and that is accessing the right hemisphere, which is the senses, sight, sound, taste, touch, and aroma. To make it very simple, those are the five areas we go after when you're talking about triggers, flashbacks, body memory. It will be attached to one or all five of those things, Mm. and it produces emotional response. So you could be in therapy literally for years and years and never access. You can talk about, you get to the point where the secrets are out, uh, the shame may be gone talking about it. But if you don't access where it's stored in the right hemisphere, the, the healing is incomplete. I, I hope that makes some sense to you. Certainly does. When I think okay. about, you know, the one thing that was the hardest for me to talk about in my healing, now that I've found healing in that area, has been so freeing as I talk about it with others, which is, you know, the fact that my body did respond to my stepdad's touch and how shameful that okay. felt for me. But to be able to to tell myself over and over and over again, you know, that that wasn't my fault, that did nothing for me because I could not logic myself out of that emotion and that feeling and that response and then the shame. So it had to be going back there, you know, and revisiting it and like allowing the Lord to speak. I'm so glad you brought that up and how brave of you, because I'm going to share a story. And and let me take this opportunity to thank both you and Mary right now, which I should have done at the beginning of the broadcast, what you do and and for inviting us into today. But years before I did therapy, I was, um, my, actually, my undergrad, which you know, Nicole was in law enforcement and corrections, mm-hmm. and my first jobs were working and investigating child sexual abuse cases. Mm-hmm. Um, and I would go out with the detectives, and we would interview three, four, five-year-old children. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I found so helpful was to just, uh, you always say, take the sex part out of it, because our culture is so... If this makes sense, whenever we bring sex into something, if we can explain it in another realm, it takes away the shame or the stigma or the uncomfortableness. So I heard early on just what you're talking about from three, four, five-year-olds that um, their body responded. They might use different terms, and there were a whole list of them, you know, things that we had to say, well, what what did they mean when they said that? And then we realized that their body felt funny or tickled or their body giggled. You know, I'm like, what does that mean? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And eventually understanding it, something that worked so easily with young children. So I share it with my adult clients, many of whom are dissociative and also have young parts. So it really is effective for them. Mm -hmm. But I tell them that God made our bodies to respond. And it was after seeing years of police officers listen to stories, and I know that their heart was meant to, uh, I don't want to say it, they didn't blame the children, but they would say things, they'd hear a story from a five-year-old and their facial expressions, or they would say, oh, that's disgusting. And I, part of my job was to train them, don't use those words because five-year-olds can't differentiate between that's disgusting and I'm disgusting. Oh, yeah, yeah. good point, yeah. Which is what I carried well into my 20s. Right. Or if they say they responded and the officer finally figured that out, they would make comments or just, again, their body language. And I I realized then that's when I started the training program for the officers Mm. that those early experiences, I'll never, ever minimize abuse ever, but it is 
resolvable, healable. People will move on from it. What stays with them that does the long-term damage are the lies and the beliefs they have about themselves Mm -hmm. that occur during or after how they think people think of them. And those children carry that the, the facial expression of the officer, the judge, um, their mother when they told. Those mm-hmm. are the things that I hear in my office, you know, when they're in their 40s, 30s, 40s, and 50s, that long after they've moved on from the abuse, maybe even forgiven the offender or had some form of reconciliation, um, the stigma are the things, are those things, of what they came to believe about themselves. So mm-hmm. what I would always tell them is, You know how when you're tickled, and I would tell them that when I was little, um, I had four brothers, and they would tickle me, and they could understand, and I could say, I would always laugh, but I hated it because I couldn't get up, Mm -hmm. and so they could understand that sense of not being in control, or I would say, stop, let me up, but then I would be laughing, and I would say, so it was confusing, because they might have thought that I enjoyed being tickled, but I didn't, you know, when it was too long. And then I tell them about when you go to the doctor, you know, you ever gone in the doctor hits your knee and, you know, with that little rubber hammer and that that's a response built into our body that the doctor has information that we don't have, that he knows when he hits you there, your knee's going to fly out. And like mm-hmm. things that little kids can understand. Mm-hmm. And so I tell them, you can try all you want, you know, like, don't let my, you know, I'm not going to let my foot go, but it will. Why? Because that's how God made us for a good purpose, a good purpose. So then anyway, that's taking the sexual context out of it. But once they start to understand my body, you know, it was built in certain ways to respond ultimately for its own protection. Mm. Or you put your hand on a burner and it's hot and you get a blister. Now, blister doesn't look like a good thing, but it's a sign something happened, you know, it got burned. Mm -hmm. So then later, you know, age-appropriate information, we can talk about body responses. And one of the best examples that I use, I try to keep it simple, is I don't know if you remember the story of J.C. Dugard, who was abducted, you know, at 14 by a husband and wife. And she ended up having two children to this individual, and she was kept initially chained. And uh, she wrote about it in a book called A Stolen Life, but she's been on TV, and you can YouTube, Google her story. Anyway, just the one sentence out of that whole book that I share with spouses is after she got out, you know, and then he put a, built a compound in his backyard, but put a, a 10-foot fence around it, and she lived there, you know, in this this shack, basically, but with um, her two daughters, until eventually she was able to escape. Mm -hmm. She went from years of being shackled to then um, being, quote, tonight, she wasn't free, but to outsiders being free to he even ran a business, he and his wife, and customers would come into the store, and she would be in there, you know, running the cash register. Mm -hmm. So years later, and to this day, people still ask her, I understand when you were bound and captive, you know, you couldn't get away, but why didn't you, you know, you were quote free for years and it negates the understanding of what captivity and mind control and all of that does. So all I have to do is explain to a husband because they'll say, well, then why does she go back to home, home visits or family reunions, or she wants to see her family at Christmas. Like they're all saying, why, why isn't she angry? Why 
it confuses them. And then in turn, if they don't understand that they judge her mm. and that's what some of the conflict is. So I always tell them, okay, you all know how you train a dog. And I don't know the term, but the electric fence, you know, you actually put an electric fence and if they cross that boundary, they get an electrical shock mm-hmm. or that. Mm-hmm. And eventually the dog is so conditioned that the fence comes down. But once that, once that imprint is laid down, the dog will not cross that path. And I mean, that, that's something that the husband thought, go, oh yeah, we've done that with our dog. And I said, well, that's the same thing that JC Dugard talks about is once you've been in that condition, you don't cross that boundary. Mm-hmm. And the one sentence out of her book was this. And all I have to do is just say this one sentence, and the husband's just look at me and go, oh. And she said, yes, I could have climbed that fence. Yes, I could have, you know, tried to escape. But she said, I knew the hell on this side of the fence. And I knew that I had survived it, and I knew how to survive it. I didn't know the hell that awaited me on the other side of the fence. Mm-hmm. It's the unknown. And I thought that was, that was profound, mm-hmm. yeah, mm-hmm. the familiarity. Mm-hmm. And so one of the things um, when I use the PowerPoints with the left brain, right brain, is uh, pictures of a horse and a burning barn. And without giving the whole story, but basically a horse's brain is wired that it's the only farm animal that if you, uh, in a barn fire, you can take out the cows, the pigs, chickens, everyone, and they will stay out if you can leave them out. But a horse, if you don't tether it, will turn around and run right back into the burning building. And so that more horses than any other farm animals are destroyed in barn fires, and that's why. Mm. So when you think of it or understand, when I show those slides and tell the story and there's more to it, that's the one thing, again, the visuals that get in that the survivors start to realize, you said earlier, that they may marry unhealthy or be attracted to the wrong type of person. Mm -hmm. But if the burning barn, under stress and trauma, a horse will return to what's familiar. Mm. So it's not that they're stupid. It's not that's where they're going to turn. So you can lead them out, but under stress, like I said, if they're not tethered, And then we talked about, well, well, how do you tether human beings? And then that, these are all the, the tools of recovery, you know, prayer, therapy, support groups, you know, all these basic things. That's the tethering. But um, if not under stress or the next life crisis, people tend to return to the, their own burning barn. Mm, wow. If that makes sense. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I was thinking as you were talking that, book that came out recently the body keeps the score i just think the title the title just says so much and and what you're talking about how you know we code trauma in our body and Mm -hmm. and we do these things without even realizing it and that's why traditional talk therapy will never move really through that it can address a lot of issues and i'm not um, negating it. It's mm-hmm. important. It's foundational, but it's the first step. But unless you access that trauma, the emotional coding of that trauma, there won't be healing or there'll be incomplete healing. Mm. So are you talking more about, you know, prayer therapy or more like EMDR? All of it. All, All of it. Those, what are, yeah, what are some of your favorites? One of the things we've, we've done for years is doing the senses. So there's actually um, the conferences that we've done in the last year. Um, 
We did one here in Ohio. We did one over at Penn State just recently, and there's one um, this year in Grand Rapids. And it's a combination of explaining or teaching about the left brain, right brain, Mm -hmm. and then using art and music. And then next year's is going to add dance. And for years I've used... Um, I've had outside people come in because, you know, with my license and all of it, I have to be very careful about I, I can't do these things because that's out of my realm. But I have had um, yoga instructors trained in, and now this is a really the coming thing in yoga mm-hmm. is now trauma yoga. Mm-hmm. So they can come in and work with the client um, as I work on the memories, and particularly with dissociative clients as mm-hmm. their parts switch. Um, then a yoga or someone trained in, in trauma can work with their body mm. to release where the, the memory is stored. And I think this but, is really important um, because, I, you know, I, know, I do know a lot of survivors who have been able to access new things through like yoga and different physical. But especially, you know, Mary and I work a lot with trafficking survivors now, and that's been a new yeah. thing for them especially with the dissociation and just intense, intense trauma that they can't even, they don't want to remember, but their body remembers and can release it through something. So go ahead, please. Well, just an easy example, even if you don't do yoga, most people know what the downward dog pose is, you know, where the head is is tilted down, Mm -hmm. kind of almost upside down. Work with a woman who I'm not, I'm going to leave out a lot of details, but basically as part of her sexual abuse, she was held um, tied from the feet and held upside down. So that body memory of being upside down at age five mm-hmm. with her hair, um, you know, falling into her mouth and trying to spit, you know, her hair mm-hmm. out. She couldn't breathe. She couldn't see, mm-hmm. trying to turn her neck to see what was going to happen next. Mm-hmm. Uh, when she did the downward dog pose, her memory came fl- like, you know, the, the yoga instructor was just walking her through it. But that's then once that memory was accessed, of course, then I could work with her, work with it was a five year old part. We could work through that trauma. But otherwise, I don't know how you get like mm-hmm. that's not something in traditional therapy, you know? Right. You uh, would ever, yeah, she would never be triggered right. towards that memory. Right. Sitting, mm-hmm. sitting in my office and just talking back and forth. Mm-hmm. So that's just one example. I mean, there's so many others. But the preverbal memory is the preverbal trauma is something that once I, I think I understood that more, it made a huge change with my clients. And so, I, you know the story, and I'm not going to go into it, but when I was two, I had a severe injury and a, and a doctor accidentally, I mean, it was not intentional, but took a saw and cut my arm to the bone. And it, it that was, I mean, not just incredibly physically mm. traumatic, wow. but all of the beliefs that I had in my head of, as, as I think an 18-month-old two-year-old would have, um, I the belief, the lifelong belief was that my mother was holding me down while somebody butchered. I mean, that, that's how a two-year-old would experience oh, yeah. it. So um, in my own life, that trauma has helped me get in touch because trauma is trauma. Yeah. I mean, yeah. no one's trauma is the same, mm-hmm. no matter what the level, no but trauma what. is trauma. Right. And the body codes it very similar. So I'm not going to get into all of that, but, mm-hmm. but I will say that in what I've come to understand about that, that has really helped my clients, is that preverbal trauma is very different and coded differently than 
when I can say verbal trauma. And the yeah. difference between that is when a child's brain isn't matured enough or capable enough yet for even speech. So any trauma, no matter what it is, that occurs before speech is formed in the brain or the ability to connect words, it's, I've seen that now with clients, and I can tell the difference between preverbal trauma and the difference between an alter part that um, was threatened not to speak. There's a difference between not being able to talk or being able to talk but choosing not to. Yeah. And so preverbal trauma means the child could never, even when years later they can talk about it, they cannot form words or put it. I hope I'm making this yeah, make sense. Yeah, that makes sense. As, in, in traditional talk therapy. And so the only way to access that is through the five senses or triggering um, or body work. And so that's some of the deepest, uh, I would say for me as a therapist, I don't want to say that's more difficult because that can make clients feel, oh, no, this is going to take, it's just saying, no, just accept the reality that it, it can actually free them to feel like, well, I'm not crazy, but I have all these thoughts or feelings that I don't have understanding or it, they just don't make sense. Mm-hmm. Yeah, <laughs> so, and that can feel out of control. Yeah, or they start to turn it on themselves. So for instance, for years, I could never understand why I did not feel close to my mother. And um, I actually was in fear when she was around. Even today, so many decades later, I, it makes me sad and I get emotional even thinking about those lost years. Mm. But Once the Lord healed me of that, just has recommitted me to helping others not let what trauma, and if you want to put it in spiritual terms, the enemy has taken. It's like he took enough ground. Don't let him take any more. So I am so committed to encouraging um, anyone and offering hope to say, you can restore the years the locust has eaten. You know, my mother and I were able to talk about this years later and cry together and just, you know, how sad. But it's made me more committed to in in so many years of my life of healing relationships, talking about things, even in my own parenting, just being more open with my children and um, just saying, you know, I'm still an imperfect parent. We all are. But the difference is we will talk about it and I provide forms for them to give me feedback and to say, because I do not want years lost or 20 years from now finding out, you know, we joke about it, but it's not funny. My kids are still mad at me for something, you know, they yeah. when they were in grade. it's like, no, let's talk about this. Yeah. I don't want lost years. Yeah. And, and that, like my arm healed. It's a miracle really that, you know, I can still use it. I have a, a long scar in my arm, mm-hmm. but, um, you know, that, that physical scar, you know, it, it's there, but it healed. My arm is fine now, mm-hmm. but it was decades of living with that fear and then not understanding why I would be afraid around my mother and then being mad at myself, like, what's wrong with you? You know, she doesn't. And then again, I worked with abuse and I would tell myself, she doesn't abuse you. Like what I work with in my office, you know, but I had, I had very similar feelings that I would hear from others in my office. And then anyway, it all made sense years later, but that pre-verbal trauma is very difficult to Mm -hmm. access. Mm -hmm. Wow. And I think about so many survivors that we've met that, you know, had a first responder that, you know, wasn't good. You know, the mom that didn't believe or, or right. the grandmother who oh, said, we don't talk about those things in our family and let it continue or, you know, 
all those horrible first responses and then carrying that with you, which obviously would damage that relationship moving on, mm-hmm. but then create a mistrust of maybe authority or, and then maybe, you know, even affect you as a mom later, if it was your mom, uh-huh. you know, all that stuff that you right. just carry on through and the importance of looking at that and not just mm-hmm. saying, well, that's just how it is, you know, but like maybe we can have conversations or if we can't have those conversations, maybe I can talk about it with someone else and get to the root of it and at least find healing myself, maybe not in that relationship, but maybe, mm-hmm. you know, within myself. But then on the flip side, so then what if you have, I, I get emails a lot from, I'll just say, you know, like a husband who will write to me and he just wants to fix his wife because she's got all these problems from her abuse and she doesn't want to talk about it or work through it. How do I, they'll say, you know, Nicole, how can I make her, <laughs> how can I make her go, you know, get help and get fixed and get over this? Cause she's, she's ruining, you know, what we have or our marriage or whatever. I didn't ask for this. What, maybe even Vince, you could answer. What, how do you, <laughs> I don't even know how to ask this. Like, how do I? <laughs> how do you shake these people via email? Because <laughs> it's really, I get there at the end of their rope and it is hard and our stuff does impact. But also, like you said, they have to look at their own things. But I think a lot of pride comes in the way and not understanding the situation. And, and that's so hard. And I always feel so bad for the woman behind the reason for the email. Sure. So if we go back to, you know, what the two of you were talking about related to left brain, right brain, and if you think of the left brain as the logic, the rational, the complex problem solving, and because abuse is on and stored in the right side, that one of the basic things that support people need to understand is that the healing process is not linear, You can't start at point A and end up in point Z and you just like reading a story. You do it in a logical, rational, progressive way. Mm -hmm. But the healing journey is very messy and it's not linear. So something that you think you've worked on at one point in time related to trust, like I'm starting to trust my support person or my spouse. And then my support person or spouse does something that breaks trust. And I feel like I've gone all the way back to, well, this person's just like everybody else who I've known in my life. Yeah. This is where the basic for that man who sends the email, it's important that he be working on an understanding of himself. It'd be important that he understand if there's communication weaknesses, if there are things he's doing that's making it harder for his wife to communicate. Mm-hmm. If she's feeling like not judged, if she's feeling free to share thoughts and feelings without him trying to rush into fixing it or correcting her thinking that's based in the right side of her brain. That's good, yeah. One way that I explain that is when I was a kid and had Cracker Jacks and you would get these little tattoos in the Cracker Jacks where you just put it on your arm and you added water and you had a tattoo. Yeah. And then you could rinse it off with water. It was really easy. But trauma tattoos into you. So sometimes people try to talk a tattoo off a person. So it's like holding up a hose of water and spraying it on this tattoo that is in the person's skin. Mm. So it's very annoying if you're a person trying to work through a trauma and this other person is just telling you that you should get over it. Right. Yeah. 
Or a, pa- or a pastor is quoting some verse that says, well, the Lord said he'd never leave you or forsake you. Why can't you just accept that? Mm-hmm. So All a right. lot of times these people who are sending the emails, they need to understand their own communication. They need to understand their own frustration with the effects of trauma on a person. They need to understand that healing isn't linear. They need to understand they're actually hurting the person when they're trying to talk at them and try to heal something that is not this easy. If I just say the right thing, there are issues with trust, there are issues with shame, there are issues with hopelessness, there are issues with self-hate, there are issues with um, foreboding and living in heaviness are just going to go away with the right verse or the right quote or the right book. Right. So... You know, all of that to say, so these emails come and say, well, I'm really glad that you're interested in your wife's healing. I'm so glad that you want to try to find things that would be helpful. (laughs) And unfortunately, I can't give you simple answers, but I would encourage you to keep working on yourself and finding the supports that you need to be regularly energized and to use this as an opportunity to learn how to love someone in ways that are challenging for you. It's really, I think, really good insight and and encouragement. I think it's encouraging for survivors, too. It takes the pressure off of them having to fix not only their issues, but everyone else's. Right. There are two books that I generally, if a husband expresses an interest, I have like hundreds of books in my (laughs) office. But one is When Victims Marry by Frank. Jan and Don Frank. Jan and Don Frank. And Ghosts in the Bedroom, Ken Graver. And those those are very good beginning obviously you can't respond to an email you know like yeah. um i mean you can respond but those are two books we start with and yeah. then because we both work a lot with dissociative clients mm-hmm. um men tend to not understand here here's a book it's not like the best book on dissociation um and i don't mean that as a criticism but i always start with this one um herschel walker's autobiography because that appeals, I know I'm being stereotypical, but men, most of the husbands, when I mention that, they will read a book by the Heisman Trophy winner. And when he talks about that, when he got the trophy, mm-hmm. I mean, the ultimate prize, he, Herschel, does not remember that moment. You know, he got up, he he gave a speech, accepted the trophy, sat down. But that really impacts the husband, you know, and they'll go, Oh my gosh. And I said, yeah. So do you, you know, to just think he does not remember that. Right. It happened to him, but another part stood up and got the trophy, gave the speech and sat down. And then I'm just saying that those are beginning stages that then can lead to um, them understanding or at least asking questions to their wife. And in their mind, it, it makes their wife not as, I don't know what term they, they'll say things like weird or even sadly crazy or like intimidating and, and, I would think it would almost be an intimidating feeling like I've tried everything I don't want to break her but what do we do to fix the problem so it gives them a real life tangible example of how this stuff affects your brain right and I and it also breaks the myth that this it, it, these aren't emotional women who have weak dispositions you know yeah. most of them would say Herschel Walker's a pretty tough guy mm-hmm. So, but it does help them begin to understand some of the, the brain coding and, yeah. and why the process works. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, but one it, of the other things is we have a couple of models that are basic. I was a, a chemical engineer. That's what my bachelor's degree was in. 
And so the logical, rational of getting from point A to point B or solving issues, like I understand how the male brain works, and yet uh, emotions aren't like emotional healing. Right brain healing is not like a simple process, as I mentioned before. So we have a couple handouts that we have found of stages of healing, but it's the same sort of thing. There's list 12 or 13 stages, but the point is people can revisit those stages. So to understand, again, this process is very complex Mm. and it lasts for a a period of time, but at least they can understand here are the different specific things that the survivor is going to need to work through and the type of atmosphere that you create and the way that you handle just day-to-day life, the way that you handle communication, the way that you handle disagreements. uh, These are all things that help create an atmosphere where these stages of healing can be visited and worked through. Mm, Yeah, and just learning how to love someone through their pain. We all all need to know how to do that, whether we're, you know, in a tight relationship with someone who's been through abuse or, you know, grieving the death of their dog. Anyway, everyone's going through something and, and people just in pain just need to be loved. And I think that learning how you can be better at that, not learning how you can fix the other person, but how can I be a safe place? I think that is where we need to turn hearts towards first and foremost. I think you've really, you've really hit on that for us today. I really appreciate that. Earlier, I I heard your comment, Nicole, and I smiled (laughs) when Vince was talking about um, pastors or people that would just say, you heard me and, say vomit. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Please expand. It's worth, it, no, it's worth repeating. Please don't edit that out of the podcast. Mm-hmm. Okay. <laughs> um, well, it's so hard. It, it, no. It's so and all defeating. Truth, one of my, my passions, I think I have so many in this area, but mm-hmm. is teaching or imparting to the church, mm-hmm. how to come alongside and help a survivor. And if, you know, Hippocratic oath, first do no harm. If you don't know how to help, then please, and I literally mean this for God's sake, mm-hmm. don't don't spiritually abuse them yeah. in the midst of it. Thank you. Because that was what that drew what me to you years and years ago was that common passion of let's educate those in the church so that they're not continuing to harm survivors. Right. And so much. And again, I always give them the benefit of this doubt that I believe these are good Uh, intentioned people, but with lack of training or whatever, Mm. they perpetuate and and really reintroduce new trauma. And so uh, Jesus, the church was never to be a building, but it was a body. Mm -hmm. And and we as the church are to come alongside, whether that's in a physical structure or in other, you know, formats, but we are to come alongside. And if, if you're not safe in church, whatever that is to people, if you're not safe there, the world, it, it will swallow you up. Yeah. I, I really have a passion to do like seminars, healing retreats, weekends, all of that in church structures. And uh, I think that's why these conferences have been so, so healing, because so many people are coming in, not just with childhood trauma, but then spiritual trauma. I mean, the, the list is endless. Mm-hmm. So I have so many scriptures that I use with clients uh, and I have to be careful because they've been scriptured to death. <laughs> mm, yeah. but, but the one that I, you know, at least want to be hopeful about, and it's Numbers twenty-one eight. I'm going to read it. 
And usually when I read it to my clients, they all give me, like, I can't see your faces, but you might roll your eyes, too. (laughs) And they all go, yeah, that's, you know, what does that mean? And I said, exactly. I'd read it my whole life over and over, never, until you have that aha moment where, you know, the Lord speaks to you. So here's the scripture, which may not have meaning, but I'm going to read it. The Lord said to Moses, and it was when the Israelites, you know, were wandering and, and they were dying and being bitten by snakes. But the Lord said to Moses, Make a snake and put it up on a pole. Anyone who is bitten can look at it and live. So Moses made a bronze snake and put it up on a pole. Then when anyone was bitten by a snake and looked at the bronze snake, he lived. Okay, I'm not going to presume that I knew anything about what that meant the first time I read it. Or, you know, but scripture is there for it to be filtered through life experience, you know, to offer hope, encouragement. So one day in prayer, right before a session with a client, I really felt led to go back and read that. And it was one of those, okay, I don't get it. Yeah. What are you trying to tell me? And then I realized that this was a client that had really been struggling with, um, not uncommon at all, but saying, if I remember I'm going to die. It's going to kill me. Like, I can't remember. I'm just, it's not worth it. I'm going to quit therapy. Yeah. Just, you know, it was really in a, in a hopeless place, yeah. feeling that. And all of a sudden, I just had new eyes. That's all I can tell you. And when she came in, I used that scripture, gave her the story, you know, the background. You want to read the before and after. But here's what I got out of that and, and what helped her. And I always tell clients, you, by the sheer fact you have walked in that door, and I'm not trying to be dramatic, you survived it. It did not kill you. I mean, it's over, whether it was five years ago or 40. You survived it. Mm -hmm. Remembering it will not kill you. Mm -hmm. It will feel like it. That's body memory. But what the Lord said to me was, you know, he had instructed them to look upon the very thing that had wounded them in order to be healed, Mm. you know, to make a snake. But the difference was that the snake that he told them to put up on a pole and look at, it was was not real. It was artificial. Mm -hmm. It was a facsimile. And that's that's what memories are. They're bronze snakes. Mm -hmm. So looking at it and remembering it cannot kill you. You've already survived it. And the best thing about that scripture then, which I got later, is I read the next line after that session, you know, back and reread that. And I'm like, oh, and the very next line says, and then they moved on. It's so powerful. It's like after we can face our fears, Mm -hmm. after we can face our fears, then we are ready to move on. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And the journey continues. uh Until the next bronze snake. And to not say that without hope, but just confidence that we can look at it again in a new way or a different one. And But we keep mm-hmm. going. Very powerful. Thank you, Vicki. Thank you, Vince. This was really great. I'm really inspired and just appreciate your your insights and, and your years and years of, of working in this field. I'm, I'm just so grateful that you do what you do. And there's people out there like you helping people like us. You inspire and encourage so many. Yes, um, you do. Yes, you do. Really. I use your books all the time in my office. Oh, thank you. That's really cool. Okay, thanks, Nicole. (laughs) Thank you. Thanks, Mary. Bye, guys. Thank you so much for listening. Be sure to subscribe, write a review if you heard something you liked. Even invite others to listen so we can be on this healing journey together. You can check us out on Facebook or go to IamOneVoice.org.